Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We're your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Hello and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Today we are going to discuss the topic of another one of the Beatitudes, and this one's exciting to me. As we sat down and started thinking about this, and I, you know, I, I put in a little time into this topic of mercy, or blessed are the merciful. And you know, I've read I've read books about the Beatitudes. Uh, I've read Charles Spurgeon's books. I've read you know Richard Rohr's book on the Beatitudes. But there's nothing that compares to receiving some kind of a personal revelation about a topic that you're interested in. And so this particular episode, for that reason, has me kind of excited. What are your thoughts on Blessed Are the Merciful or or the topic of mercy, just off the top of your head, Christopher? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of mercy is its supposed opposite, which is justice. And so I think to understand mercy... We have to understand justice, and that's a big topic. As a philosopher, I know that philosophers have argued about what justice is for millennia, but I think we can actually maybe even bypass all that and through Revelation get get some answers that are immediately applicable. I think that's great. There's one, um, I, I found a quote, I was listening to a general conference talk from 1990 by Gordon B. Hinckley. And one of the things that he did to introduce the topic of, of blessed are the merciful, which was what his talk was on, is he said, mercy cannot be legislated. It must come from the heart. It must come from within. And that, that calls to mind sort of what you're talking about here. Justice is always an attempt, at least in the social politique, to try to legislate a certain type of morality via consequences. Like by by attaching consequences to actions or punishments is maybe a better way to say it than consequences. And and perhaps that's why justice has become such a difficult topic to tackle, is because we always want to connect it to the quote unquote justice system rather than seeing justice as something else, maybe more biblically related. Yeah, I think it's really important to separate morality from from politics and not in the sense that that Machiavelli is understood to have done in that he divorces politics from morality but in the sense that when we're looking for justice when we're seeking justice that the law isn't the place to look that morality is the place to look and that even if we believe that there's a, a standard of morality that we should aspire to that as president hinckley has pointed out we can't actually force that on other people by force of law and why is that? Is it just because it's not effective or because it's like immoral? I would say it's immoral. I would say it's, it's a, it becomes a false concept at that point. It's not actually just unless, as President Hinckley pointed out, it comes from the heart. It's not real. Well, the other thing that he said that's related to that is that mercy is the very essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think when you divorce, as you said, the the topic or idea of justice from enforcement by some state body or, or through political means, then justice really just starts to fold into mercy. I think that's the idea. And, you know, as we know, when it comes to pairs of opposites like justice and mercy and others, in order to get back into the garden, back into paradise, into the presence of God, we have to be able to conjoin those opposites. We have to be able to bring them together. And I think that's what the Christ is and and does. Namely, the unification of supposed opposites. Yes, and especially justice and mercy. Can you give us an example of a particular episode where 
Christ showed the unification of justice and mercy. Well, there's the example of the woman taken in adultery covered in one of our previous episodes. I think that's a good place to start. Yeah, so in that context, there was the obvious justice element or unjust element of, number one, the adultery. And that the woman has committed a sin that has taken her out of a right relationship with God. And so there's this attempt by you know, the enforcers of the law to bring things back into alignment with, with God's will. And God would never condone adultery, so we need to eradicate that sin via some kind of atonement, right? She needs to atone for that sin and do so, you know, ostensibly by her death. So it's one of those big sins. It's interesting because when you think about restoring balance, which is, I think, another way we can think about justice, right? We often have the idea of the the icon, right? The image of the the blindfolded woman who is justice with the scales, balancing the scales, right? Restoring, you know, by, by uh, committing another injustice, we're not going to restore justice. And there really is nothing that can be done but to repent. And now, of course, well, where does the atonement now fit in? What would you say? Well, I think there's an old school way and by old school, I guess I mean, um, you know, law of Moses type of way of addressing what atonement means. Essentially, atonement was an individual task where one person atones for their own sins via some kind of penalty, uh, some very harsh corporal punishment, typically. And so the penalty for adultery was stoning. The penalty for stealing was having your hand cut off and so forth. And it goes right down the line. It was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth type stuff. And that was the idea of atonement that was prevalent in the law of Moses. And Jesus comes along and introduces a different idea about atonement. And this particular episode with the woman taken in adultery is one of the earliest experiences that sort of represent or, or give an example of what atonement means in the Christian ethic. And in doing that act, he satisfied any demand for justice while also extending mercy. And so how did he, how did he do both? And it's interesting because when you say he satisfied the, any sense of justice while extending mercy, it really is one and the same thing that he's doing, right? It, it's, you can hardly even see when you talk about conjoining these opposites, it's not that he does one and then comes the other. They really seem to come at the same time. Right. Yeah, so in that particular episode, you've got the accusers, the folks that are holding the stones ready to throw, and they ask Jesus what he would have them do. And in that sense, we, we think of his response as being a merciful response. And it is, but not just to the woman. It's also merciful towards the accusers. And so he is giving them an opportunity to exercise their idea of justice while not condemning them. So in a, essentially what he says is, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Because a sinful person casting a stone in another person and killing them, taking, taking blood unrighteously, would lead to their own condemnation. And so he wants to make sure that they're not doing something that's unjust and so he extends them the mercy of thinking about their actions before they actually do it and giving them the opportunity. And in so doing, he actually saves them from themselves. Right. Exactly. And, and in so doing, he saves the woman as well. Yes. So it's mercy all the way around and justice. Beautiful, isn't it? Pretty awesome. There's another instance where Christ is on the cross and he utters this phrase, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He's allowing justice in the conception of those who, you know, are crucifying him to run its course 
while at the same time extending them the mercy of not knowing exactly what they're doing. Yeah, we can see this idea of justice that we slash they have, it, you know, as coming from, we can go all the way back to Cain, and it looks like Cain is instituting this idea of justice. Um, he, he feels like because of what he's done, now, because he has killed, now everyone will want to kill him. And this idea comes from him, not from God. Yeah, and that's a representation of the world's idea of justice. That's eye for an eye stuff, right? Yeah. And so how does God react to that? It's, it's essentially that God came to him and placed a mark upon him so that he wouldn't be killed by every person that he came across. And... Essentially, he let him go. I mean, if that's not pure mercy personified in the life of Cain by God, you know, I'm not sure what else is. That's like the earliest example of of mercy being extended. Well, perhaps the, the other mercy is just telling Adam and Eve that, you know, you're going to have to go and earn your bread by the sweat of your brow and conceive children in, in travail and pain but yet I'll provide a savior. So there's an, there's an example of mercy. But uh, I, I think kind of the first fully extended example is, is where he lets, he lets Cain go. He does, and he, he seems to want to, to, I was going to say he seems to want to protect him. He seems to want him to at least feel protected from this idea of justice that, that he has, that Cain himself has, that comes from himself. And so we it can be... It's one of these self-fulfilling prophecies, right? this idea that Cain has. It does become the way of men, but it's not God's way. Yeah, and in that way, I think we read the story, at least in terms of how it can profit us. We read the story as a symbol or an archetype of the way that man interacts with man rather than the way that God interacts with man. So the way that man interacts with man is we just assume eye for an eye. That's, that's, that's justice. That's our conception of justice. And in the same episode, we see God's idea of how justice works in his interaction with man. And it's different. It represents mercy. Like his justice is mercy. So we're, we're kind of cataloging a few experiences and scriptural examples of mercy and justice, not to juxtapose, but really to try to bring these concepts into alignment or into a right relationship with each other so that we can really understand what mercy means. And there's this, there's another example that we, we find in the scriptures where Jesus heals a man and the Pharisees come and accuse him of of having done that by some power that you know he doesn't deserve or wield or uh, have any rightful claim to, and Jesus responds, "Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy more than sacrifice." Well, he's quoting from an Old Testament scripture found in Hosea chapter six, verse six. He always points these, you know, masters of the law back to the law because that's their frame of reference. And he's trying to unlock the secrets and the hidden meanings of the law to those who are masters, so-called, of that law. In so doing, he's really proving how much of a rabbi he is. Yeah, and I think there's an important lesson there for us too, because we often tend to think that we, we know what the scriptures are saying. And, and we're not even these kind of, you know, rabbis. We have not even made a, a lifelong dedication of studying the scriptures in that way, and yet we know what they mean. And what would Jesus say? He, I think he would say what he said to those on the road to Emmaus that had, that had actually walked with him, that, that thought that they, that they knew, and that now that Jesus was crucified, they thought, well, I guess uh, we you know they 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 had lost they they felt like they had lost the plot but Jesus comes and says to them no it's not that you'd lost the plot it's that you never had it you never really understood and he does this again by quoting them from their scriptures imagine what that's like 
to enter into a full-time study of the Torah, literally memorizing all of it by about the age of 13. A lifelong study from childhood, having all of the, the Hebrew scriptures memorized for the opportunity to study under a master, you know, and receive that invitation of come follow me and, and becoming one of their students or a disciple of one of these master rabbis. And yet through all of that memorization and study, not really getting to the meat of what those scriptures mean. And I don't want this to come across wrong because, I mean, there are some brilliant Hebrew scholars that know way more about the Hebrew scriptures than I ever will. But in this particular circumstance that Christ is addressing here with the Pharisees, he's really teaching them what the hierarchical importance of mercy is in relation to sacrifice. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So the personal revelatory experience I had when I was studying this scripture is that mercy has a much deeper meaning here. In in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew scriptures, one of the devices that's used frequently, all the time, you see it all the time in, in Isaiah, you see it all the time in Proverbs and Psalms, are these couplets. And the couplets are set up so that we can get a deeper understanding of one value or virtue or term in relation to another. And so it's kind of just helping to expand our understanding of what a word means. And in that specific couplet that Christ references in Hosea 6.6, it says, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. So that's the first half of the couplet. The second half of the couplet says, And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Now it's very clear when you, when you equate sacrifice with burnt offerings that that, you know, that is a, a, an equation that balances. Everyone understands that a burnt offering is a sacrifice. But do we also understand that knowledge of God is equated to mercy in that couplet? And how does that expand our understanding of what mercy really is? So I'll read it again. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. How does seeing knowledge of God in that relationship to mercy open up your eyes of understanding for you? Yeah, it's clear in that in that couplet that mercy is being equated with knowledge of God. And the only thing that I can say about what that might mean, I'm curious to know more of what you got out of it, is that, well, there's that first principle of the gospel, as Joseph Smith put it, right? Which is to know the actual, I can't remember his words, but to know the nature of God, the true nature of God. And so if knowing the true nature of God means understanding his idea of justice is mercy, then I'm, I understood the, the passage as, you know, as perhaps you understood it. But I'd like to hear more about what you got from that. Well, I have kind of this math mind because I, I work with numbers all day long, and I like things that, that balance out. Um, I do a lot of financial stuff. <laughs> and and when the assets match the liabilities, the world makes sense for me. Um, and so I, I like stuff like that. I like balance sheets. Isn't that what isn't that what people think of as justice is balancing things, right? That's what we, that's what I mentioned in the in the concept or the icon or the image of the of justice personified with her scales. Right. Yeah, the balancing of the scales of justice. But it seems like you're going somewhere else with this, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm not really balancing opposites. I'm saying that these are the same thing, that sacrifice and burnt offerings are the same, and so is mercy and the knowledge of God. And so it's not so much about balancing a scale where opposites are on each side of, of the scale. It's really saying that mercy is the knowledge of God and approaching and coming to a better understanding of who God is is and and how God operates um, amongst men and how maybe he intends for us to operate amongst ourselves, it's critical to understand that mercy is a big, critical element of that. 
I'm not sure where justice really works into that, but but it was interesting or at least revelatory for me to understand that mercy equates to the knowledge of God. So this idea that knowledge equates with mercy fits in well with LDS theology because we talk a lot in Doctrine and Covenants, for instance, about the key of knowledge of God. And that becomes interesting because key is related to priesthood power. And, uh, you know, I've been taught uh, a couple decades ago by a friend of mine about what he referred to as the spiritual keys of power. And Chris, you and I have already talked about possibly doing an episode on this, so I won't go too deep about each one of these spiritual keys of power, so to speak. But one of them is the key of knowledge of God. And so as I was doing a little studying about what key of knowledge of God uh, refers to and where it shows up in the scriptures, I came across an interesting scripture that I wanted to kind of go down this chain on. And it says in DNC 128.19, As the dews of Carmel, so shall the knowledge of God descend upon them. Now Carmel is this kind of hilly region outside of, it's it's in Judea, and it's uh, it's a prominent landmark that Christ and his disciples would have known about as as Galileans, and uh, it receives about 250 due days per year, D-E-W days per year, where, you know, maybe it's not getting rain, but there's always moisture on this this mountainous area. And so the, the dews of Carmel are kind of a rich metaphor for God's grace descending from heaven. And we might not even notice it. It might just kind of accumulate within or upon us like dew does, very gradually. But pretty soon we recognize that, hey, I've got dew on me. I'm wet. I have, I, I'm experiencing God's grace or mercy at this very moment. And I didn't realize it until just now. And so it's kind of like a personal revelatory experience with mercy that is being... Uh, Uh, metaphorically referred to here as the dews of Carmel. Now the dews on Carmel, they sustain a great variety and abundance of plant life there, and it kind of looks like this mountainous oasis in the middle of the Judean plain. And Carmel, the the Hebrew word is keremel, and it means garden of God. So I think that's a beautiful little metaphor for maybe how grace and mercy are extended to humans, to children of God, in that we come to a knowledge of God working within us or upon us as we recognize his mercy and grace in our lives. Any thoughts on that? That is a beautiful image. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a beautiful image. You know, there's one thing that occurs to me that is that there's such power in the poetry that we hear in this statement right of of the knowledge of god distilling upon us as the dews of carmel there's so much poetry in the bible especially you know the the jewish bible itself has a lot of actual verse and it's usually not translated in verse the king james translation isn't in verse although it is poetic uh, a lot of times a good translation will bring through the poetry even though it's in prose Robert Alter recently produced a verse translation, well, his own translation of the Jewish Bible, including verse translation of all that is verse in the Bible, including books like Job, right? Um, Job had, had only been previously translated into English in verse by Stephen Mitchell, who did a great job too. And there's something powerful about poetry because it speaks directly to the heart. It's not propositional. Uh, philosophers speak to us propositionally, and they speak to our heads, but the, but the prophets speak poetically, and the Lord speaks here poetically and directly to our hearts, and it's so powerful. I'm going to share another verse where Joseph Smith sort of borrows this same imagery and language, and it's a famous one that we all know in DNC 121, and it's in... 45, DNC 121.45, let thy bowels also be full of charity towards all men. And one could easily put, you know, mercy in place of charity there. It really is sort of the same idea. 
So let thy bowels also be full of mercy towards all men, and to the household of faith, and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God. Again, that idea of knowledge of God, or being in the presence of God, and experiencing God, having some communion. And the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. Kind of a similar imagery. It is, and we hear of bowels filled with mercy in the scripture. Yeah, that is very much like the the quote from the New Testament. So this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for those wondering, it's in Matthew chapter 5. And Matthew 5 is set up as the first, you know, half of it, I guess, of the chapter is a summary of those virtues or attributes that really demand the blessedness of God. If when you are these things, then you are blessed as something else. So if you are meek, you inherit the earth. Um, If you are mourning, you're comforted. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you're filled. And if you're merciful, you obtain mercy. And so it's set up as this beautiful explanation of being and recognition and really contemplation, which is what we're all about. As you contemplate your own nature as a child of God, you recognize immediately the grace and mercy of God that distills upon you as the dews of heaven or as the dews of Carmel. Same idea. So if the beginning of chapter 5 is the summary of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, then the wider exposition is contained in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapters 5 and 6 and even into 7. And throughout chapter 5, there are real-world examples given by Christ of each one of the Beatitudes and what they mean and how they function in real life. And so, for instance, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, he speaks about what a merciful person does. And I'm going to just open into this real quick. Matthew 5, 38 says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so we kind of talked about this already, that that's the world's way of extending justice or um, executing justice, I should say. But then Christ goes on to say, But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain, go with him two miles. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, Turn not thou away. Christopher, this is a perfect example of what we're talking about with the world's idea of justice, which does things by legal fiat. You know, sue thee at the law, compel thee to go a mile, taking your coat from you via taxation or, or any other way. That's the world's way of doing things is through coercion. And Christ is laying out another way, and it, and it has to do with mercy. And it really has to do with justice as well, putting things in right relationship. When we see others as we see ourselves, and we're working from that first commandment to love God and love our neighbor, then not only do we give our coat, we give our cloak also. And we don't just walk a mile with someone, we walk two. And we're not just talking about walking two miles with anyone. The context here is that that the people of God, the Israelites, the people that Jesus is speaking to, their context is they're under Roman occupation in ancient Palestine. And the Roman soldiers come through and compel them, the occupied, who already feel humiliated in some sense, to be further humiliated by carrying their packs for them. And Jesus is saying to them, if a Roman occupier comes and asks you to carry his pack one mile, you go with him too. Man, can you imagine? It's a lot to stomach. It is. It really is. 
And then the other example, shoot, what was the other example? If any, if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. It's essentially going beyond the law, you know, not letting the state determine for you what level of charity you're going to extend towards a person. If a person wants your coat bad enough and you offer them your cloak also, what kind of an example is that? Yeah, it's interesting. I remember when I was a student, an undergraduate student at BYU, we had a couple of researchers come and talk to us, and they had done some research into charitable giving and came up with some surprising results. They, did, they were completely unexpected. And then what they found is that even after Americans are taxed to the level that they are taxed, and let's not kid ourselves with the what is it? I think if you add up all the taxes, it really does come close to 50%. That even after we're taxed this much, that we give more than anybody else. And yet, if you take a look around you, we can see that, and, and keeping in mind that we're much as given, much as expected, it doesn't look like we're giving enough still, right? There, there are people who are hungry. There are people who, are, who don't have drinking water. A large portion of the planet does not have clean drinking water for the people who, who live in those parts of the world. Something, these are things that we take for granted, right? Yeah, so there's always, there's always more, and we, we ought not to look towards the, the law and what has established as its minimum pound of flesh as our threshold for charity. Yeah, not only that, but if we could, um, if we were already doing more, then there may not even be a purpose for a law. Good point. Right? The law is trying to exact a pound. What if we were already giving two pounds following Jesus's teachings? Then what would be the point of having a law to exact one pound? I remember reading in a biography of Commodore Vanderbilt, as he was called. I don't even know if I know his first name. He was the Commodore um, Cornelius Vanderbilt, that when they when they told him that they were going to establish laws to regulate the railroads, he said, well, if, if you think laws will help people look after their interests better than, than they already look after their own interests, go for it. Of course, what, what happens with laws is these things go awry. That's the other problem, right? And there's this attempt again to, to establish justice by force when what's needed is mercy and that the mercy actually brings about the justice. And it reminds me of something that that um, what's his name? John Dominic Crossan said he pointed out that the Roman way of finding peace or justice, I think we can in some sense equate those to the Pax Romana. That idea was to was an idea of peace through victory, right? If we conquer the whole world and we bring it under Roman law, there's again this idea of law that uh, that that lex that law was going to bring peace. And that Jesus' way is not the Roman way. The Roman, the, the Roman way is peace through victory. Jesus' way is peace through justice, i.e. mercy. It's a big difference there. Yeah, and it, Americans have largely adopted the Roman way, and they call it peace through strength, but it's the same idea. Yes, indeed. We're all Romans now. So as we continue through the end of this chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 43, Christ says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father. And this is important, I think, because, again, like we talked about before, where mercy is equated to knowledge of God, here, being a child of God, being children of your father is essentially to act in mercy towards those who might be esteemed as your enemies. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. And so this is an interesting metaphor that he's using as well, essentially saying that all of his children are loved, all of his children will receive mercy, and in the same quantity. He sends sun and rain on the just and the unjust to nourish him. 
Yeah, there's something else there too. It makes me think of the beginning of Ecclesiastes in which the poet, prophet, the writer of uh, of Ecclesiastes tells us that it really makes it clear that it, it doesn't, there's no direct correlation between how good you are and how long you live. You know, he says, people are not good and they live a long time. People are good and they die young. And we see this happening. We know this happens. And so, and I guess we get here that God is no respecter of persons in that sense. And that there's a bigger picture, of course. Yeah, and Christ actually repeats that same idea when the paralytic man comes to him to be healed and he says, neither did this man sin nor his parents before him. I think it was the paralytic. It could also be, uh, he could have been a blind or a leper. I have no idea. I can't remember the specific instance. But essentially what he's saying is that this this person who was afflicted didn't earn this affliction through any sin of his and his parents didn't transmute it through the blood to him as a result of their own sinfulness. It's just, it is what it is. It's mortality. It's a fallen world we live in. But yet, mercy is available. Charity is available. God's love is available. Just like they're given as sun and rain to the just and the unjust, the good and the evil, it's available there for everyone. And it's interesting to go into this into this verse, you know, into that you just read, and I actually would like to ask you to read it again. Sure. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. So it's interesting to think about what it takes to be a child of God, right? To to be able to to enter into that right relationship with God, not to be a bastard child, but to be one who knows his father as he is. Back to Joseph Smith's first principle of knowing the true nature of God. We have to be the child of God. We have to actually be merciful to know him, because again, that mercy, as you've pointed out, is connected with the knowledge of God. They are, in a sense, one and the same thing, as you've shown. And so for us to be children of God and to, and to know God, we have to be merciful. Yeah, we have to exercise that same charity, grace, and mercy that he extends to his children we have to exercise that as siblings of other children of God. We have to exercise as he would exercise towards his children or act as he would act towards his children. That's brilliant. You know, when you said that, it came to my mind, of course, because that would be just, you see? So you're talking about exercising mercy toward our siblings, and that occurs to me immediately as just. Of course that's just. Mercy is justice. There's a, there's a couple instances that come to mind with this idea of being right with your brothers and sisters. One of them says, and I'm trying to remember where the scripture is, but basically it says, if you're coming to the temple to offer a sacrifice and you have aught against your brother, leave your sacrifice, go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come back to the temple and give your sacrifice. So you have to be in a right relationship or a just relationship with your brother before your sacrifice can even be really acceptable to God. And this harkens us back to Hosea 6, 6 again, where he says, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than the burnt offerings. So before you come offering according to this law of sacrifice, it's more important that you be in a right relationship with your brothers and sisters and by extension God. Otherwise, your sacrifices are pointless. Yes, and yet the sacrifice is still there. It's still right? there. But it's putting things in their proper perspective and, and to realizing this goes back again to the esoteric and the exoteric, the inner and the outer experience. The sacrifice is part of the what, what we would call today the covenant path. Right? That's, that's the ancient covenant of making these sacrifices. Today we have our own covenant path, uh, out of the new, out of the new covenant, uh, which is as we call it, the New Testament. 
from what from the teachings of Jesus that we're discussing here. And yet, for those to be effective, there's the esoteric, right? There's the idea that we have to be in a right relationship with God. And that takes mercy. Can I offer another example that just come to my mind? Um, this one, you know, I want to be... I want to be careful about it, but not too careful because I want to talk about the example. So in the temple, we have a, a practice, a ritual, where we join hands and we pray in a circle together. But before we can do that, we are invited to evaluate whether we have any negative feelings towards any other person within that prayer circle. And why? So that the Spirit of God can flow freely in that circle. Unconstrained, we're invited to leave the circle because it's not the time and place to be reconciled with our brother. Right, it's better if you just step aside and figure it out. Right, unless that's something we can do in the moment in our hearts, right, where it's just this one-sided thing, and that's possible, right? But the principle is the same as the one that I spelled out before, where if you're bringing a sacrifice to the temple and you have ought against your brother, leave it there, go be reconciled, and then come back. Yes, there's always the next session, the next prayer circle. Yeah, so that's interesting. So justice and mercy are really starting to come together for me here. You're on your way back to paradise. We really do have to... We really do have to be able to, to conjoin these pairs of opposites to understand the unity of which God speaks as God speaks of himself as in unity with the Son, and the Son speaks of himself as in unity with the Father, that they are one. And this is, we could understand being perfect, which means to be complete. The, the word that's being translated perfect it means complete, we can understand being complete as, as including all that we think of as separate from us, as not separate from us, of understanding our right relationship with God and with our fellow man. Well, that's the next verse right after the ones we just read out of Matthew chapter 5. It says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And the Greek word there for perfect is this word complete, teleos. And it's interesting that the prior word for unjust, just and unjust, is the, is the Greek word dike or for unjust, adikos. And adikos, again, unjust, another rendering of that is unrighteous. Yes, it is rendered unrighteous also. And so we can understand unrighteous as being out of, out of right, not being in a right relationship with God or with other children of God, out of alignment with one's own nature as a child of God, and just not connected to your true self. So that's kind of an out of that right relationship. Yeah, and we can see, as, as we've shown, right, that, that there's this impulse in in fallen man to bring about justice by means of the law right and and that that's actually reflected and and of course you know with as with the, the as we say the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions right it could be that there's an intention of of uh of bringing about justice through the law but somehow this always goes awry and it's always going to be more effective if we bring about justice through mercy. But we can see the relationship, you know, going back to this idea of justice and righteousness in the words for law in other languages other than English. I know you know German, and the word for law and the word for word for right are the same word. Yeah. Recht. And the same is the same is true in Spanish. Derecho. Yeah, what would this look like? This is a, a kind of a theoretical question, but you know, if we were to take and try to apply these principles that we're learning here about what true justice is in relation to mercy and in relation to our knowledge of God, what would it look like in today's society to strive for a different kind of justice, godly justice? What would that look like? 
Well, in today's society, we have already the law in place, right? There's there's no ignoring. Well, there there is the possibility of ignoring the state beyond what most people think. I myself fully exercise my right to ignore the state. And yet, to really answer your question, the state is there, and it's already trying to compel justice. But again, if we go out of our way, if we go two miles when the state asks for one, or before the state even asks, what difference does it make whether there's a state there demanding by force justice when we've already brought it about through mercy? It's fully within our power to establish a Zion community by being merciful. So I think that does a good job of addressing sort of the positive laws that are created by the state. But a lot of the negative laws are consequential. So if you steal from someone, you go to jail for this period of time. And if you murder someone, you go to jail for this period of time. And not to be insensitive to victims, that's not where, where I want to go with this. But from from the standpoint of justice, through the eyes of God, and how it's all about bringing people into right relationship or at wanting them with their true nature, what would a justice system based on God's principles rather than the state's or man's look like versus what it looks like now? You know, I was going to say this back when you mentioned someone suing for a cloak and getting also the coat, or if I have it backwards the other way around, what would happen if we took the example from Victor Hugo's novel of the priest Jean Valjean steals from, and they bring they they catch the they catch the thief Jean Valjean, the the authorities catch him. They bring him to the priest to say, "We caught this man with these things. Are they yours?" And then, of course, if he says yes, and they fully expect him to, they are going to haul him off and bring justice in scare quotes. And if you know the story, you know what that looks like. And it's not godly. Let's put it that way. And what does the priest do? He says, no, no, no. Uh, those are his. I gave them. To, as a matter of fact, he forgot these. This is, it's beautiful. This is exactly what what Victor Hugo is doing. He's giving us a representation in literature and art of the principle of if you're sued at the law for your coat, you give your cloak also, or vice versa. One of my favorite scenes in literature as well, um, it, it's it so you know, powerful, brings you to tears it? when when you yeah. see that represented on screen or as you're reading it or in a play or whatever, to see that represented and the feeling that he gets when he just realizes, I, I've received this great mercy. And we can do this, Riley. We can do this. All it takes, going back to the example that we started with of the woman taking an adultery, is to realize that we are not without sin. How dare we cast stones? Why is it so hard for us to remember this? We're not without sin. We have no business casting stones. We must be merciful. And if we're merciful, we receive mercy. What more could we ask for? What more could we give? It's a it's a beautiful sentiment, and the only reason I hesitate at all is because you know you think about you think about the victim of the wrongdoing, and like how do you balance their interests with those of the sinner? I guess you could say. I understand. I fully understand, and that's why the law. That's why the law is saying we have to compel this justice because. The victim demands it. Cain demands it. The person who was stolen from demands it. We demand justice. And so Christ offers himself. He says, okay, you think there has to be justice? My plan was mercy. But okay, there has to be justice? Fine. I will pay the price. Are you satisfied? Who is he satisfying? Do we think he's satisfying God? God wants to zap us and Jesus is going to save us from God? The Father and I are one. That doesn't make any sense. It's our sense of justice. And so and that sense of justice, again, if if you're a victim and you feel that sense of justice, that's real. And that's why the atonement is so powerful. 
But what does that look like? I challenge each of us in our victimhood to consider this, to consider what we're talking about here and to, to consider the possibility that there's another way and it's mercy and that there is justice in mercy. Well, I've had my prior assumptions challenged a little bit and I've learned a lot just talking through this with you, Christopher, and in preparing for this talk. I'm excited to try to apply some of these principles and really try to put mercy at the forefront of how I interact with other children of God, extend to them a little more grace than maybe I had before, and uh, hopefully in doing so I can put myself back into a right relationship with God and uh, gain a little bit more knowledge about what, what God is all about and what I'm all about. There can be no greater clarity than that which I feel now in this you know, in connection with this conversation too, I feel the need more than ever for God's mercy because I have not extended it. I have not extended mercy myself. I hope that I've been challenged too, Riley. You know, there's, it, it, I really do believe it's within our power to, to overcome, to, to, to believe Christ, right? To overcome our, the demands that we have for justice with mercy, seeing his example, believing him, accepting the atonement, taking upon ourselves the name of Christ, extending mercy in true Christian fashion, following the example of the priest in Victor Hugo's novel, which really is, again, a representation of a teaching of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior because he's our example, because he shows us the way of mercy that will satisfy our sense of justice. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this conversation on mercy and, and blessed are the merciful and this, this beatitude of the saviors. If you, if you have, please give us some feedback. We'd love to hear back from you. Uh, we have a YouTube channel under Latter-day Peace Studies, and we are, of course, called Latter-day Contemplation on that channel. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all the regular places, and we'd love to hear back from you. Also, if you have any ideas for shows that you'd like to hear, let us know. Leave some comments, subscribe to the channel on on YouTube, and uh, get back to us. We'd love to hear from you. We appreciate all of you as listeners, and, and we hope this has been beneficial for you. And so until next time, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. And this has been Latter-day Contemplation. Have a great week.